You ever seen a? Uh, yeah, turn my mic up. You ever seen a track star? Uh, somebody who who has just won uh, an event throw their hands up in victory. Mountain View uh, High School um, boys won state track competition yesterday, and um, I don't know if you saw any pictures or saw anything on it, um, but they were very celebratory, right? They put their hands in the air and they're just on cloud nine. They're just thinking they're they're all that. Uh, when when what's his name? Uh, Bolt. You say Bolt won the the open 100 in the in the Olympics. He came across the line, and there's a picture of him coming across the line with his arms outreached. And he runs with his arms outreached like this almost all the way around the track. He runs 100 meters to win, and then he runs another 400 with his arms in the air because he's in complete and total victory. There have been many studies that have shown that when we take on a pose of victory... (coughs) Just simply smiling makes us feel better. But taking on a pose of victory that I have won makes you feel better. So what I want you to do right now, and because the subject that we're going to discuss this morning oftentimes is one that can get me down. Man, wish I was better. I wish I was better. I want all of us to go into this feeling victorious, all right? So I don't care if you're not married. I don't care if you've been married. I don't care if you have an awful marriage. I don't care if it's a great marriage that you want to get better. I don't care what kind of marriage it's in. I don't care if you've ever even thought about marriage once in your life. I want you to take on this pose for just a few seconds. Hold it up in the biggest V that you can make. Come on, Greg. It's got to be higher than that. There you go. Come on. Doesn't that feel great? The person next to you was wishing you would shower this morning. But but it makes you feel good. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. There are so many of us that that really kind of struggle in our relationships. And not just just our, our marriage relationships, but just relationships in general. And we're discussing uh, in this series uh, interdependence, a, a concept, an idea that, that we rely on each other to gain better understanding of who we are, better understanding of who God is. We've talked about that last week, our relationship with God, a vertical relationship. And this morning we're going to talk about the, I, I believe, one of the most important relationships on the planet. Other than our vertical relationship, the number one horizontal relationship is a relationship between a husband and a wife. And I know my math skills are not that great. Most kids in the room could tell you that one plus one equals (laughs) equals one. And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. A relationship is like a house. When a light bulb burns out, you don't go out and buy a new house. You fix the light bulb. Right? It's just like that with relationships. If there's something that's not quite right, we fix that something that's not quite right. We don't try to trade it in for a new model. (laughs) 
Marriage is bedrock. Marriage is foundational to a stable functioning church, to a stable and functioning community, and to a stable and functioning society. Marriage is pivotal. When I say protect marriage, when I say protect biblical marriage, what is the first thing that comes to mind? For me, it's this idea of fighting against what Satan has attacked with and this whole idea of, of gay marriage. We're not going to fight against that today. We're not going to fight against anything today. We want to protect biblical marriage by reinforcing what real marriage is all about. Real marriage was established by God. It was, it was Adam and Eve in the garden, and he put them together. That's what biblical marriage is. It's between a man and a woman. This relationship was designed to be a lifetime commitment. One rule before we begin. This is a no-elbow message. See what John's doing to Sarah right here? Elbowing Sarah. This is a no-elbow message. This message is for you, not for your spouse, all right? It doesn't matter where you are, single, engaged, just married, never thought about being married, been married once, maybe you're on the backside of an ugly marriage, it doesn't matter. What we're going to talk about today can benefit all of us in our relationships, not just in a marriage relationship, but most of us in every relationship. What does it mean to be one? What does one look like? How can we become one? And why is one important? We're going to talk about some elementary things first. And, and to do that, I want us to go in the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 2. Have you ever read through the entire book of Malachi? It's not very long. It's a very interesting uh, way of writing. And if it's, if it's anything, it's definitely a literary, I don't know, masterpiece. It's, it's absolutely strange the way that Malachi writes. But I want us to look at it, and if you don't mind turning there with me, Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going to start. Chapter 2, uh, right around verse 13. And I don't know, it's really, really small on the screen. Can any of you read that? Yeah, maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can't. But if you, if you can't read it up there, look it up in your Bibles and um, follow along. Let's look to God in word of prayer, and then we'll dive into this Malachi passage. Dear God, I thank you so much for, uh, for giving us life today, for making us... Uh, allowing us to be here this morning and be able to be in, in the presence of, of greatness. Not just you, but also all of those around us that, that are trying to serve you to the best of their ability. God, I pray that as we look at this one plus one equaling one, that we'll get a better understanding of what it means and what it looks like in your eyes to be one in a marriage relationship. God, please help everyone here, each individual here, no matter where they are, no matter what, association they have with this this term marriage. God, help us to be able to learn and gain and understand better what it is you want uh, from us when it comes to, to marriage. Please bless us now and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 13 it says, here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he pays no attention to your offerings and, and doesn't accept them with pleasure. And you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her. 
Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord God of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied him. How have we wearied him, you ask? You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them. You have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? You drive down Cleveland southbound right next to Home State Bank. And multiple times I've driven by there and seen signs outside the store, outside the building that says, do it yourself, divorce. It's a way to get out of commitment. It's a way of of ending a relationship with someone you're with. Maybe you've used that firm and maybe they do a good job. But look at what it says here. You've wearied him. You have made God tired by saying all who do evil is good in the Lord's sight and he is pleased with them. Haven't we done that? Haven't we as um, Americans and we as, as, as people as a whole thought, well, you know what? It's probably okay. It's probably all right if if one person no longer loves another, it's probably okay to just end it. And just move on and find someone new. We've wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? God, this is so unfair that I get stuck with this person. Now, what's funny is that these days we choose our spouse, right? Back in the old days when this was written... They didn't choose their spouses. Most of them were arranged. And these commands were for those arranged marriages. You didn't get to choose who you, who you got to live the rest of your life with. Someone else chose for you. And you got to learn it. Who we marry isn't as important as how we do marriage. These principles were in, in many cases for those who were forced to be married to another person. The difference today is that, you know, you get to choose your spouse. So guess what? It's your fault. You're the one that chose them. You would think this fact would, fact would make it better, but oftentimes it doesn't make it any better at all. These principles apply to every marriage. The ones that are not so good. Maybe even this morning. <laughs> Why is it that Marriages always have seen, relationships always seem to be in a big, huge fight Sunday morning before church. Maybe the ones in the room that are just average, the ones that are just sort of drifting along, maybe the relationships is there, but maybe it's not all there. Maybe it'll make that relationship a little better. And even the great ones that want to make sure that 
their relationships stay that way. Even the ones that probably shouldn't have happened in the first place. You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, man, I, this, this was a mistake. There's a very famous marriage in the Old Testament that should have never happened. That it should have never gone down that way. David and who? David and Bathsheba. What came from this marriage? Well, obviously there was punishment. There was, there was uh, some condemnation by God and there was some discipline. But what else came from this marriage? This oneness between David and Bathsheba. Solomon came from that union. And guess what? Later on, Jesus Christ. And you know what's really funny is that when you look up the genealogies of Christ in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, when it comes down to David being the grand, great, 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 we all need to work at being one. These plans work for any marriage. It's not about who you picked. It's about how we do marriage. Some out there have this idea that God is this perfect man and this perfect woman for them. And when she or he, they, they get connected, that the rest of their life is going to be nothing but beautiful bliss. They found their soulmate. <laughs> it sounds great, but I want you to understand that there's no such thing as a soulmate. In fact, in quite opposite, we have to create that soul connection. <laughs> I want you to also understand that that one and perfect, that perfect one, the one that you think is just going to be the absolute perfect one, and maybe you still have that perfect one. Maybe you're still married. To that perfect one. That perfect one. Maybe sitting next to you. Has a sin nature. And you know what? A healthy share of it. (laughs) And so do you. We all have a tendency. To be selfish. Your soulmate. Is the one you choose. To love for a lifetime. And they decide to do the same. That's your soulmate. There's not one person out there that has a password to your heart. The password to your heart is given each and every day, every single moment of every single day. We think it's all about about who we marry. And we focus on the chemistry rather than the commitment. It's not about chemistry. Nowhere in scripture do we find this idea that there's a chemistry between two people. We're drawn to this person for an eternity because of some sort of chemical reaction. Chemistry is something you feel. Commitment is something you do. We become focused on finding the right person rather than being the right person. I've done a book study with many of the young people. Most of them are not so young anymore. Most of them are married and starting to have children of their own. I guess it worked. Um, The book is entitled Dateable. And primarily it's written to young people. This book helps them focus on being the right person rather than looking 
to find someone. It's not about finding, it's about being. Another elementary idea is the opposites attract, right? Don't you think the opposites attract? There's something very, very interesting about someone who has traits that you don't have, right? The problem with those opposites is that you might be attracted to them, but when you're with them all the time, when you're close by them all the time, those, those opposites oftentimes start to annoy. And then beyond that, those opposites actually sometimes make us angry. We're admiring those traits, and then we become annoyed with them, and then we get angry with them. And guess what? You can't fix them. Let me tell you a little secret. They don't want to be fixed. Your spouse that has those beautiful, attracting things that are opposite of yours. You go into a marriage, and some of us are even 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road, and we're still trying to change those things that are opposite about our spouses. They don't want to be fixed. And guess what? They're probably trying to fix you still. One plus one equals one. Let's move into some secondary thoughts. Three keys to for surviving as one. If you're going to become one, you need to leave, cleave, and weave. We obviously get the leave and cleave part from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 22. It says, this is the way mar- the marriage way God intended it. Look at it. It says, then God made man, or made woman rather, from, from the rib. He brought her to man. And what the man say? Yeah! Woohoo, I won. Victory! He brought me the right one. This one is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two united are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Some things have to be left behind in order, to, in order for a relationship to survive. If we're going to survive as one, we're going to have to leave some things behind. And those some things are parents. Parents have to be left behind. There has to be a healthy distance between you and your parents in order for your relationships to survive. You're going to annoy somebody. You're going to please somebody. You know what? You need to choose your spouse rather than your parents. Guess what? They're going to be annoyed. You know how many times a week mom gets annoyed with me? Often. You know why? Because I'm not trying to please her. That's not my goal in life. My number one goal in life is not to please my mother. It's to please my spouse. Right? Mom's on the list, but she's not always where she wants to be, like she used to be. When you choose to marry another, there's things that have to be left behind. You know what? Even sometimes dreams have to be left behind. Some of us have this, this personal potential, and we want to strive to gain uh, you know, personal dreams and goals. But you know what? There are times when those things need to be left behind in order to join with our spouses. There were things on my list of things that I wanted to get accomplished in life. You know what? Some of those things aren't going to happen. And you know why? Because I got married. And now I have four kids. They're even farther down on the list now. 
but that's okay because becoming one is what God desires for our relationships. When we choose to marry other than pleasing God, our primary responsibility is to our spouse. Many passages of scripture talk about, well, it's, it's better to stay single because then you can get more accomplished for God. And that's true. But once we marry, our priority is to please our spouse. Obviously, God is, is number one, and he's in the middle of everything. But our primary responsibility, leave, cleave, and weave. We've got to pull ourselves, pull ourselves together as, as a relationship. Parents need to be left behind. Uh, some dreams and goals need to be left behind so that your relationship can be woven together. Staying connected has to become a priority. Everyone and everything tries to pull you apart. How many of you have a boss that will say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some extra paid vacation time because I want you to spend more time with your spouse. Have any of your bosses said that to you? No? Guess what? They probably won't. And you know what else? Your friends. Those friends that you used to have, maybe high school, maybe college, maybe just the neighbors, maybe just the people that you hang out with. You know what? They are never going to come to you and say, you know what? I think we should just slow down on hanging out quite so much because I think you should spend more time with your spouse. Has that ever happened? No. It's never happened. It probably won't. And guess what else? When little kids come along, when children come along. How many of you have seen a child come along when mom and dad are sitting next to each other, come along and sit on the outside of you and squish the two of you closer together? Does that ever happen? No. Where do they sit? Right between you, don't they? Everybody and everything is trying to separate you and trying to pull you apart. You have to make a conscious effort to stay connected. Stay connected spiritually. Your relationship will stay connected if you work to spiritually connect. Devotions, reading together, talking about your faith is crucial. Staying connected emotionally. Enjoy each other's company. Work together on a project. Work through emotional things that life throws your way. Good times and bad. Share them emotionally. Cry together. Laugh together. Sulk together. Be full of joy together. Stay connected emotionally. Stay connected intellectually. It takes work. It takes lots of work because you know how it is. You've heard all of their stories, right? You've heard all their stories. You know what they're about. You know who they are. You know what they do. You know, you know who, who their best friend in high school was. You know all the stories. So how do you stay connected intellectually? It takes work. You have to work at it. Stay connected physically. We're not going to read this passage because it's slightly outside of, of um, Sunday morning service kind of scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. The Bible commands us here as married couples to be physically intimate. Holding out, shunning your spouse physically. First of all, it's sin. And secondly, it's going to lead your spouse into, into temptation. It's not my quote, but it's pretty hilarious. Relationship isn't looking up if you're not hooking up. Stay connected physically. We've got to leave, cleave, and weave. If you're going to be in a relationship and, and if you're going to allow one plus one to equal one, you've got to stay connected. You've got to leave, 
cleave and weave. You'll never be finished with it. It's a constant work from, from day one when you get married till the very end of your relationship. When one or the other passes or when God comes back. We've always got to be working towards intimacy. Because everybody else is trying to pull you apart. They're trying to pull you into isolation. And most of all, Satan is. It doesn't matter what kind of marriage you're in. We have to work on our relationships. So to end this morning, I want to get real practical. We're not going to belly up to the table and sip on a latte. But I want to get real practical again. Just a few things that I think are really helpful for relationships. If you don't learn to celebrate your differences, you'll fight over them. Celebrate your differences. Don't just acknowledge them. Don't just, oh yeah, you're, you're different. You have to celebrate those differences. All right? Celebrate them. There's a difference between celebrating and just putting up with. Driving through downtown Loveland has been uh, very similar almost my entire life. I remember in youth group, uh, our youth group leader would, would race the lights in Loveland because that's, they were, they've always been in sync. You, you come up to the stoplight at First Street going north on Lincoln, and what happens? You catch the light, right? turns red, you sit there through the light, you get it green, and you can make it all the way through 7th Street, and you're home free all the way to Eisenhower. The same thing on the way home. If you're coming back down, well, maybe it's not home, maybe it's just south. When you're coming south, you hit 7th Street, and you catch the light at 7th, you stop there, you wait for a green light. When it turns green, you can make it all the way through the rest of downtown, you're home free all the way to 402, right? Now, there are times when you get to 1st Street and the light turns yellow while you're in the intersection. What do you do? You have got to at least maintain the minimum speed limit. Well, I know that sounds opposite, minimum speed limit. You have to at least maintain the speed limit in order to catch the next light on green. However, brainiacs in the city of Loveland have decided to narrow between 5th and 6th. And now it's like congested right there. Even, even between 4th and 5th, it's pretty congested. Parking right next to the road, and everybody tends to slow down. They're doing 15 miles an hour through there. And if you're going to make it from 1st all the way to 7th, you're going to need to speed it up a bit. You know what? There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it. You just have to slow down. You just have to wait through another light. I'm going to have to put up with the stoplights in Loveland and the retirement community that's escalating in Loveland. I know all you old people have a right to drive slow, and I can't wait till I'm old because I'm going to drive slower than anybody I know. I just, it's just because you have the right to do it. Even better is getting close to a roundabout when you're following a Grandma Buick with Nebraska plates. You just know it's going to be a disaster. You just know you're going to be sitting there for a good 20 minutes just waiting for these people to keep rolling through the roundabout, right? Yeah, something you put up with. You want to celebrate differences in your relationships, not just put up with them, okay? You can learn to put up with anything, right? But if you don't celebrate those differences, you'll learn to fight over them. Gotta, gotta celebrate them. If you expect your mate to meet all your needs, you're going to be dis disappointed, bitterly disappointed at that. They're not there to meet your needs. There are voids in life, and we have desires to have those voids filled, and God-shaped voids can only be filled by God-shaped things. 
We try to fill these voids with drugs, material possessions, houses, cars, technology, toys, sex, guns, boats, social media, all sorts of other fillers. These voids can only be filled with God. And oftentimes we think that our mates should fill those voids within our lives, and that's not the case. Only God can fill those voids. We have idealized view and a set of expectations for our spouse. And when they don't meet them, we want to throw them out and find someone else. If we don't throw them out, we become bitter. We have, we have this beautiful picture, this beautiful wedding picture of what our lives are supposed to be. And oftentimes we get down through life and this picture of perfect marital bliss is, is no longer there. Life doesn't turn out that way. We have a tendency to tear up the person rather than tear up the picture. I'm not telling you to go home and tear up your wedding picture. I'm telling you to eliminate those, those ridiculous expectations. Don't lower expectations, but just don't have unreasonable ones. Marriage wasn't designed to make us happy. It was for the purpose of making us holy. It was for the purpose of making us more like God, teaching us to serve and love unconditionally. This concept of our spouse being the one who's supposed to meet and make our every, meet our every needs and make us happy is so far off. We have unrealistic expectations. And I believe it's one of the most prevalent marriage killers today is those unmet expectations. You know what? Boys and girls are different. Right from the womb. You lay them next to each other in the nursery. You walk up to the little boy and that little girl. The little girl uh, laying there in the, in the nursery will look up and look right into your face. Right here. This is where they look. You walk up to the little boy. And what does the little boy do? Looks right past your face at the ceiling fan right behind your head. <laughs> We literally would lay in bed, Corbin would lay in bed with us and try to fall asleep, and we would hold our hand up in the air and do one of these numbers. He would watch that and just think it was... We actually installed the ceiling fan in our room so that Corbin would be entertained. I mean, that's just the way it is. This is the way they are. Little boys are different than little girls. Little girls on the playground at school are right in each other's faces, aren't they? You watch them on the playground. Little girls are just, they're relational. They're riding each other's faces. They're talking. They're having a conversation. What do little boys do? They're sitting next to each other, facing one direction. And every once in a while, they'll glance up and look and see if they got a booger hanging out or something. But that's just the way little boys do, right? They're not relational. They're not in each other's face. What would happen, guys, if, if on the playground, one of your little guy friends, one of your little man buddies comes up to you and gets right in your face and starts talking to you, what would you do? Would you play with them tomorrow on the playground? No. That's just not something little boys do. Right? What's funny is in, when we start dating, guys will tend to be very relational. We, we tend to cater to that side, that need that they have. We'll be right in their face. We'll look them in the face and we'll allow them to look in our face during the dating experience. And guess what? So do the ladies. The ladies will do the same thing. The ladies will come out and go fishing and go hunting and they'll come out and go race cars with us and they'll come out and they'll do all those things that us guys like to do. Right? But after the wedding, everything sort of 
goes back to normal and uh, our expectations are no longer being met. We have unrealistic expectations. Ladies, are your expectations coming out of novels, TV shows, and Hollywood talk shows rather than out of God's word? Men, are your expectations coming out of Hollywood movies and on the internet with porn? The internet makes it easy and uh, so easily available to, to, to any of us. The trap of pornography is huge. Guys, if your expectations are even remotely related to what you see on the screen, you will be disappointed. The ideal lover does not exist like that. Both expectations will destroy your marriage. One of two things will happen, and I've seen this over and over again. Either you'll continue to expect this unrealistic fantasy of what a lover should be like out of your spouse, or you will withdraw from her. You will live your own life, your own little life where you're in this fantasy world where your unrealistic lover exists. Both will destroy your marriage. It's only a matter of time. You can see it a mile away, the distant husband who doesn't like to hang out with the rest of the family, does his own thing, doesn't interact with his spouse very often. They've withdrawn into an unrealistic fantasy world of pornography. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want your relationship to succeed, you must tear up unrealistic expectations. Take them out. What you read in books, what you see on a screen is not reality. Those people are paid to act like that. If you don't share the little stuff each day, it will become big stuff over time. Don't let the little stuff blow up into big stuff. Couples drift apart. They drift apart. Naturally, they drift apart. Step by step or their walls are built brick by brick. Right? So when you, when you drift away step by step, you understand that, that <clears throat> it's because we're not sharing those little things every single day. What happens when you come home? Somebody told us very early on that when you get home from work, when you come home from being apart from, from air for any length of time, is you sit down and you talk about what happened during your day. And I don't care if, and, and what's the typical response? Well, how was your day? Uh, fine, good, right? We need to answer it more honestly and catch each other up. Because naturally, because of your experiences are different than hers, her experiences are different than yours during the day, you will naturally drift apart if you don't share those experiences with each other, if you don't stay focused and stay together. We each have change that we experience based on what happens during the day. Share the little things. That's going to bring you together. That's going to keep you together. That's going to keep you from drifting apart. Walls get built brick by brick. We have emotional pain, touchy subjects that are sometimes difficult to deal with. We tend to lay a brick there. And in our relationship, when we lay a brick, we, it's just one of those subjects that we just don't like to talk about. We just don't want to go there. And so we walk around it. We won't talk about it. We won't work through it. We won't communicate about that particular brick. And so we'll walk around it. We'll skirt around it. When the subject comes up, it just sort of gets a little quiet in the room. And we just move on to something else. 
Well, what happens is when we start to do that on a repetitive basis, we constantly are, are just putting bricks down. Well, I just don't want to talk about that. So we're just going to set that there. And, and before you know it, we're up to here and we're up to here with a wall between you and your spouse. You can't let that happen. We start counseling a, a, t- a troubled marriage and oftentimes it gets worse before it gets better because as a counselor, we start to take some of those bricks down and it hurts to talk about those. It hurts to communicate about them. Don't let those bricks build a wall between you. Allow yourselves to focus on those little things that sometimes hurt so that you can not allow that wall to be built. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, it says, Don't let, or don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. We need to deal in the short term. Deal in the right now because over time those little things become big differences. Almost the last one here, it says, If you're stuck, get help. The stubborn and angry tend to demand power and control. In a marriage, it's whoever is the most stubborn and the most angry, whoever can throw the biggest fit, right? They're the ones that typically control the situation. And the one that gets run over is is typically embittered by it, broken down to nothing. The underdog gets to the point where they they struggle to really love the other and themselves for that matter. When the bricks get stacked and there's issues that are, are reoccurring that just keep happening and happening and you're having a hard time working through them and you can't figure out how to tear that brick out, find some help. Come to the realization in your relationship that you know what, we need some help. We need to put things back together. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse, eight, uh, verse 15 says, The way of fools seems right to them. Those are the marriages that don't ask for help that end up in divorce if they can't work through a problem. But the wise listen to advice. It's okay to find a professional Christian marriage counselor, but in most cases, it's better to simply find someone who you look up to spiritually. Find somebody that you look up to spiritually that you can just share what's going on, share whatever it is that's within that little brick that you're having a hard time working through, and ask for advice. What would you do if this was happening in your relationship? You know what? You'll be surprised. They may not have any professional counseling experience. Just that little bit of advice may help you work through the problem that you're in. I call it spiritual arbitration. Just go somewhere where you can find somebody that can help you spiritually speaking with this problem that you're having. Last but not least, if you want someone to feel loved, you have to learn their language of love. We've talked about this before. Gary Chapman wrote the book. Isn't Gary Chapman the five love language? Is there another one? Smalley Chapman. I think Chapman's the five love languages. I don't remember. But anyway, one of those guys, one of those Garys. They're all all good guys. We will talk about uh, this in just a little bit in our discussion groups. But we have to learn to love our spouse the way they want to be loved. It can't just be, it can't just be, well, because I like, I like to uh, have uh, words of affirmation and that's what I'm going to give to her. No, find out what works for her. Find out what works for him. There's a whole bunch of them. We'll list them uh, in, in just a bit. There, there's, there's gifts. There's time spent together. There's acts of service. There's helping out. There's, there's public loyalty. When you're in a in public situation, you want them to, to 
be loyal to you. Um, there's just simply entering into uh, the other's world that sometimes makes them feel loved. Uh, being connected emotionally, supporting dreams and goals. All of these things are languages of love that we can learn to share with our spouses. Make it a priority to leave, cleave, and weave. Learn their love language. Figure out how to speak it. Figure out how to speak it fluently. It's not all about you. It's about them. It's about being one with them. And you know what? It's not all about who you married. It's about how you do marriage. It's not the wrong person you're sitting next to. It's the way you're going about the commitment that you have for them that's the problem. Be committed rather than expecting chemistry. In order to be one, we have to think a little differently than the world. We have to think selflessly. We have to think about the other before ourselves. And uh, in order to, to equal one, one plus one, these two have to be a little different than what we're seeing in the world out there. God has a plan, and I hope that there's some things here, some maybe some ideas, some thoughts that you can use this week to maybe boost your relationship. It doesn't matter if it's a marriage relationship or maybe it's just a good friend. All of these ideas and all of these, these concepts can work in any relationship. Maybe it's a, a parent that you're trying to get along with better and you want to instill some of these or put into practice some of these ideas. They'll work. So, I know my math skills aren't that great. I know they're, they don't add up. But from God's perspective, they do. And uh, one plus one equals one. All right, so we're going to have a timer up on the screen here in just a minute. We're going to break up into small groups. 